Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I, I did fail to mention something. I'm going to mention it now. Um, we, um, the church also reconfirmed Jonathan as an elder who just uh, led in singing here and has also uh, confirmed and sort of reconfirmed Bill Howard to the eldership as well. And we didn't uh, ordain Bill because we ordained Bill years and years ago as an elder here. And that never, he, he always has served, even though he stepped down from the board for a while, while he went and pastored in, in another place. Um, but he is still very much a shepherd here and has been a shepherd here. And so Bill, I didn't, that's why we, we you know that, but uh, we, you've always been an elder here. And so we're thankful that Bill is able to serve back on the board at this time as well. Let's look in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you follow on your Bibles, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 16. And uh, that's found on page 1345, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, 1345. <clears throat> Let's hear the word of God. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of, the, of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we who first, who, we should know, I'm sorry, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, and from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we approach such a text as this, as we approach this amazing book, we, we just once again pause to ask for your help, to ask for real help from you, that we would ask that you would supernaturally, through your power of the Holy Spirit, Open our eyes, help us, give us wisdom, help us to see and to discern your word, and help us at all at the same time to be applying this to ourselves, to not be hearers only. Give us grace, we pray. Work and move in our midst. We're literally asking, Father, that you, the God of the universe, would come into this small little humble room and work amongst your dear people. And draw us closer to you. Edify us. Build us up. Strengthen us, we pray. Give us vision. Help us, we ask. We just pray for your grace. That you would be glorified and honored. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In the spirit of thanksgiving, I would like to say, just myself speaking personally, that the year 2023 has been a great year for me. It's been a great year. No, I didn't get any younger. Yes, I'm still gray. Yes, I'm still old. Yes, I've had good days and bad days. Yes, I've had ups and downs. 
Nevertheless, this year has been marked by me as a great year, and I'll tell you why. It's because beginning in January of this year, I have had the privilege of pouring my life, my heart, my soul, my mind, my meditation, and my prayers into, th- into Ephesians. This has been an absolutely delight. Many of you know in January I was totally intimidated. It took 45 years of ministry before I even attempted this book. But there's been such a richness in these first three chapters. And that's, I'm hoping that that's going to be, to be seen even as we move into chapter four here. Uh, the Bible by far, by far is the greatest piece of literature that has ever been written by the human, uh, in a, with a human pen. But certainly the book of Ephesians is like the Mount Everest that is, that is hanging over so much of that. And, uh, and so it's been a great joy. Uh, jumping into it, and the second half of the book, I'm sure, is going to be that as well. I'd like to begin this morning by just telling you something of a podcast, actually, that I listened to, and it's by a name, it was about, a a man was being interviewed, his name is Justin Beerley, and Justin is a very winsome British uh, fellow, and he apparently has a podcast, I never listened to his podcast, but he's he's a Christian apologist, and he has spent most of his life talking with non-Christians, and he actually has this podcast where he brings on some of the top, especially in the, year, in the last decade, some of the top um, uh, atheists. He's brought them on, and he's had them on his podcast, and he's, he's, he's sort of debated, discussed with them, but he, he's kind of a winsome fellow, and so he's developed close relationships with them. And you know some of the names, that, that, that Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, and those kinds of things. And he found an interesting thing happening. That's why he was being interviewed. In about 2018, he was setting up his schedule, and he called some of his, his atheist buddies and said, hey, come on back on. We'll have a discussion. You can try to convince me to be an atheist. I'll try to convince you to be a Christian. And many of them refused. And they said, I'm, I'm not comfortable doing this anymore. And he said, why? And he said, because I'm sort of rethinking everything myself. And he actually ended up interviewing them personally, and he wrote a book entitled The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why the New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. And he was finding that many of his, his friends are reconsidering Christianity. And he wrote a book concerning that. But he said something really interesting that really uh, struck my imagination, and he said, One of the powerful ways that we can do apologetics today, and apologetics is sort of trying to convince people of the Christian faith, is he said he said he he really liked C.S. Lewis, for instance, or or Tolkien or or, or men like that as a as a role model for him, because he said they did something really interesting. He said they painted a picture of a world in in their literature. It was Narnia for for Lewis, it was Middle Earth for Tolkien. They they painted a picture of a world, and it was a world in which in that world, some uh, the hopes and dreams of people were found. Certainly Narnia was such a magical place, and it was talking animals, and it was there was always just kind of health and vibrancy, and Aslan is there. And he said they, they presented this world, and then they said to people, what if this world is true? And then they said, I'm going to prove to you that it's true. And that was Lewis's apologetic. And, and, and when you think about it, you get the Chronicles of Narnia, you have the Space Trilogy, and then you have such books as The Abolition of Man and Miracles and Mere Christianity, where he, he takes us through that process. And, and that really struck me because I, I really feel like in many ways the book of Ephesians has that sort of feel to us. It presents this absolutely beautiful picture. It points us to other places of the Bible, and then it talks about whether this being true. Now, you remember when we were looking at the book of Ephesians, what I'm going to try to do today, we're moving into Ephesians chapter 4, and in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is going to now focus on the church and unity and growth and maturity and the importance of the church. But for many years, I always saw this as sort of a break, and now Paul's been, and, and I'm totally convinced that's not the case at all anymore, that this is actually totally built on what was going on in 1, 2, and 3. And so today is going to be sort of a, a flyover. We're going to look at the big picture one more time before we jump into the details of, of, of chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I want to do this flyover. And if you remember, Paul starts talking, this is what makes Ephesians like the Mount Everest, Paul starts talking about this mystery of what God is being unfolded now, of what God is doing in the world, of what God is doing in history. 
of where God is taking this whole thing. And if you look in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, you remember, and, and, and some of this is going to be a review of where we've been over the last year, you remember that he says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Don't we need that today, wisdom and prudence, by the way? Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. This is a God will, that God's will, and it's a, it's a mystery. It was, it was, it was not un, unfolded until it is now through the apostles. That's what Paul will say in chapter 2. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one, and a better translation here would be gather together under one head, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in, on earth. Now notice that the sweeping nature of verse 10. God's plan that he has willed before time began was that he was going to gather together, restore all things together in his fallen cosmos, restore it all under one head, Jesus Christ, and there was going to be an absolute, complete oneness, harmony between heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. That's the vision. And again, all you have to do is read the rest of the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, and you see there that that's God's plan. God's plan was this, this world that he had created falls into disarray under the power of sin, under the power of Satan, under the power of death, and God is going to then send his son on a mission to restore it, to restore it. And the, ends, uh, the end goal, as we're given, especially in Revelation 20, 20, uh, 21, 22, is this new heavens and new earth. This completely restored cosmos, new heavens and new earth. This united cosmos where there is all one. It is all healthy. It gives you that Narnia feeling. It's all healthy and, and, and there's eternal life and there's no death and there's no disease and there's no suffering and there's no goodbyes and there's no sin and there's no injustice and there's no war and there's no racism and there's no oppression. There's nothing, none of that. There's harmony and harmony in the midst of the richest diversity and there's no hunger and there's no tears and there's friendship and there's love and there's union all around the whole globe and all through the cosmos. And we saw this a little bit last week when we, um, when we read, listen to me, I'll read it again to you. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After these things I looked, John said, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations tribes, peoples, tongues. Think about that diversity. Nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, there's unity, they're all clothed in the same robes, with palm branches in their hands. So, so capture this picture. John is looking, as it were, at the end of time, in this vision, he sees the new heavens and new earth, and he sees this vast multitude of people. And they, they, rec they represent ethnic diversities. They represent nations. They, there's different colors of people there and different, different uh, uh, accents there. And, 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 and they have that diversity, that rich diversity that makes the world so delightful in that sense. And yet there's this unity. They're all dressed in white robes. And John will go on to say a few verses later that those robes, it's a strange sort of mixture of metaphors, I guess, but it's, it, the robes were washed white through the blood of Jesus. In other words, this is symbolic of their sins had been cleansed through the blood. And so they have this complete unity amongst themselves. All of these people who are standing before the throne in these white robes with these palm branches in their hands and they're worshiping. And listen to the unity of their song. In verse 10, the next verse says, And crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so you have this absolutely beautiful picture, this beautiful world. This, and, and, and that's where Lewis was going with Narnia. That's where Tolkien was going with the Middle Earth after, after, the, 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 uh, after the, the redemption. 
we get this picture, and we all kind of long for this. Genuine unity, genuine diversity, genuine richness, oneness, closeness, united in worship to God. And what I want to say to you today is, this beautiful story is true. It's true. And I want to convince you that it's true. And it's true. And for me, it's absolutely 100% true. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ came to earth as the very Son of God. He left the throne of heaven. And he came to earth to make this thing come true. And he lived upon the earth. And he walked as a normal human being. He was fully human and fully God. And he performed these miracles to show forth that he was God. He stopped the wind and the waves. He fed the multitudes. He healed people who were sick. And his disciples were eyewitnesses watching this whole thing. He said that he was going to lay down his life. He laid down his life. And he said, you'll know that I'm the son of God because I'll rise again in three days. And he rose again in three days. And he rose again, and in rising again, he defeated death, he defeated sin, he defeated all of those things, and he ascended to heaven. And then the eyewitnesses went around proclaiming it. We saw him, we saw him, and many of them, most of them, in fact, all of the disciples except John, were executed. And they, they never said, no, no, it's a lie, we made it up, we made it up. No, 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 they knew it was true because it is true. And what the Bible teaches us now is, is that Jesus Christ is head over a body of people. His body, as it were, you could put it this way, in many ways is still on the earth and it's spreading and growing. And this is the outflowing. This is the work. This is the transformation that will ultimately lead to a new heavens and a new earth. Look at it in the book of Ephesians. We've already seen it. Look at chapter 1 and verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now pause here before the next verse. Notice here that this is the same thing that Paul said in verse 10, that God's plan was that all things would be united in one under the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he has now placed him at that highest level. He's sitting there now and over above all of these things, and he's head over all things, and he's ruling all things for the church. To the church, then notice what he says in verse 23, that amazing verse. We've looked at it so many times. That, and I still, we still haven't even come close to plummeting its depth, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ. Now, remember, we've talked about this union with Christ, this body. And here, the church then, the church upon this, especially the church upon the earth, is the outflowing, the working out of this idea, bringing together the entire cosmos into transformation and unity in Christ. Look at what he says in chapter 3 and verse 8. To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all to see what is the fellowship of the mystery, here we go again, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now, the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church or through the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which God, he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is working out this transformation of the world <coughs> through this thing called the church and the principalities and powers are looking on. They're even seeing and, and, and seeing this revelation. And that's why he can say in chapter 3 and verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. Now, what is Paul going, then what Paul moves to next is the church as the body of Christ. Now, let's pause here for a second. Because oftentimes when we think of the church as the body of Christ, you think of 1 Corinthians 12, those places. We're going to get there. We're going to go all there in the weeks ahead. 
of the church being made up of uh, being a united body made up of individual parts. And, and Paul will talk about people being the eyes, people being the ears, people being the feet, people being the hands, and, and how we're united and how we all need each other and the church can't be. And sometimes we think of the church as the body of Christ merely as an illustration. A body is an illustration. That's what it is. And that's not how Paul sees it. He does see it that way, but that's not even scratching the surface of what Paul sees. What Paul sees is the reality, and this is what we've been looking at in the book of Ephesians, the reality of the union of us and Christ. The reality of union with Christ. Now, you remember that reality, union with Christ, being in Christ? Remember that when we looked at the book of Ephesians, we said from verses uh, 1 through verse 14, in those 14 verses, for 12 times, Paul uses the phrase either in Christ, in Christ Jesus, by Christ, through Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Adopted in him. Redeemed in him. Cleansed in him. All of those is because of the vital union that we have with Jesus Christ. And that's why he says in verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 23, that we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What's ahead without a body? What's a head without a body? We are the fullness of him, and yet Paul doesn't want to say that the Son of God needs anything to fill him. We are the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is a groom without a bride? This is what Paul was saying. What is a vine without branches? This is what Paul was saying. We are somehow in this vital, mystical, spiritual one union with Christ. And from that union, salvation flows to us. Now, notice what he says in 119. He's praying. Remember, that was the great, one of the first of the two great prayers. And he was praying that the Christians in Ephesus would know something about themselves, that the eyes of their understanding, the eyes of their heart would be open. And in verse 19, it's this. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then he says, according to the working of his mighty power in which he raised Christ up from the dead. We are united to that power, he says. And then he actually opens that up in two, in chapter 2 and verse 4. Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, what, whatever that means, and it means a lot. We've, we opened that up uh, a couple months ago. He made us alive. We are alive in union with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And notice how he even carries it out further. Verse 6. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are now sitting in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he is the head and we are the body. And we are united with him. He is the groom. We are the bride. We are married to him. We are one with him. And if he sits enthroned on high, ruling all things, we sit with him. Now, this is that vision of all things being united under in one in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul sees this whole thing being played out. And, of course, in chapter 2, he then opened up. Jew and Gentile were, were brought together in one body, reconciled to God in that one body, united together in one body. So there's this union and united between us, this union and uniting with Christ, and it's all being made one. And this is the vision of the transformation to a new heaven and a new earth. Now, for Paul then, this union of head and body, this union of head and body, Christ and the church, that is a reality. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just an illustration. It's a reality. This head and body, this union that takes place between head and body. And it is Christ the head is the source of vitality, the source of life, the source of reality, the source of spiritual life, the source of victory, the source of transformation comes from Christ flowing through the body. And that's what it is. Now think about it. Just think of the illustration. Think of your head and how you're, think of just your head, your brain. You have your brain up here in your head. It is the command and control section of your entire body. It, it, it is the, 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 the electrical pulses from your brain is going and telling. So if you want to move your foot like this, your brain tells you to do this. My brain tells me to do this. My brain, and from my brain, the command and control center, 
the life, the vitality, the force, the, the energy, the direction and everything comes from that to do that. That's what Paul is getting at. But not only is the brain in the head, but think about it. My ability to see and perceive outside myself comes from my head. My ability to hear, my ability to smell, my ability to taste, my ability to communicate, my ability to speak, all comes through the head. The head is absolutely vital, but the head then is attached vitally to the body. And this is what Paul is saying. It flows through the body. Now for Paul, he sees this then. Paul does not make a distinction like many people falsely make today. Paul does not make the distinction between this sort of universal church and local church. Paul never makes that distinction. Paul does, he can't think in those terms. He doesn't think in those terms. Paul thinks of the church, the body of Christ, being experienced locally. That's what Paul sees. Think about this. You believe, I believe, in humanity. We believe in the concept of humanity. In our imagination, we go around the globe right now and just think of all the, the richness and diversity of humanity. We can be believers in humanity. And yet, when do you actually experience humanity? You only experience real humanity like you're doing right now. You're sitting next to them. You talk to them. You, you, you engage them. You, 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 and so in one sense, you can almost say humanity is always local too, in that sense, to my experience. Even when we Skype, we just feel like this is, this is several steps away from really engaging humanity. Paul sees the same thing. The body of Christ, this, this, this living, dynamic union where Christ is flowing through in his power into these people. It's experienced for Paul in Ephesus for these people. And that's why he begins this letter by saying, to the saints who are in Ephesus in Christ. This is the local body. Now notice what Paul sees then. He sees then is in the local church, the power of Christ, the power of the head flows through the body. And it happens in this diverse group of people that are one. They're diverse and they're one. And they're the body of Christ and they have gifts, diverse gifts. And yet they use them as one. And these are the themes that he's going to start to, to play out. Of course, it's very clear in verse 4. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But then notice that he says this in verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. <coughs> Excuse me. So he's going to start opening up this idea of unique individual gifts that minister to the one body. And that's where the metaphor then or the illustration is, you know, all of these different parts working together as one whole and working for the good of others. And so notice how he says this. Look, for instance, in chapter 4. Verse 15, he says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head. So notice here the parts, the individual parts, the diverse group of people with all, all the individuals who are one united with him are all growing together into him who is the head. <clears throat> notice verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies and joint is a really bad translation, by the way. Uh, joints don't supply anything. The word means bands that connect. And some of your Bibles will have ligaments or tendons. I say blood vessels, nerve. And that's what Paul was getting at. According to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so you have this, this body that is growing together. Now think about it. This union with Christ this body that is one with him, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In union with him, we were raised. In union with him, we have new life. In union with him, we're sitting in the heavenly places right now. This body that is, in, that is in union with him, this body, vital, his life and energy flows through the local body of believers. And think about it. Jesus has talked like this. Jesus said, whenever two or three of you are gathered together in my name, what did he say? I'm there in the midst of you. I'm there with you. 
When, when, the apostle, when Saul of Tarsus was, was persecuting and beating up the church and the Lord Jesus shines his glory upon this man, he falls to the ground. Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. And you know what Saul's next words are? Who are you, Lord? Like, who am I persecuting? But Jesus' whole point is, you're persecuting me. See, if somebody wails me right in the belly, pow, I say, why did you hit me? I don't say, why did you hit my belly? I say, why did you hit me? And Jesus is saying, you're persecuting me. I'm one with these people. They're my body. They're my bride. I'm one with them. And you're persecuting them. You're persecuting me because there's this vital union. And again, from this union, then Paul's going to open up. From this union, we grow. We grow. Look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 4. Till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man or a mature man, to the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Just as we long to see our children grow, the body of Christ grows as the energy, the life of Jesus pours into them. That's what's being said here. And then he goes on to say this, verse 14, he says, no longer children tossed to and fro. We're going to grow in wisdom. We're going to grow in maturity. We're going to grow in this way. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We're going to grow up in all things in him. Verse 16, all the joints and ligaments, as they're flowing, everybody's doing its own part, working together. It's growing. It's edifying, Verse at the end of the verse. It's building itself up in love. And then Paul was just going to work this out. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, he says this in verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. He's talking about their former life. And he says this. Look at verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There's that transformation that is going to end up in the end with a completely transformed new heavens and earth. It's beginning now. You're being renewed and transformed. In fact, notice what he says next. And that you put on the new man. Remember a better translation we talked about? The new humanity which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What is God doing? Through the head of Christ, by which he's going to unite all things, through that head, he is sending forth life and vitality and holiness and transformation and transforming these people through these local churches, and he's literally making a new humanity who's going to populate the new heavens and new earth. This is a glorious vision. In fact, look at verse 25. I actually love verse 25. It's kind of a, it, it, it wouldn't jump out at most people, but it jumps out at me all the time because it says this. Therefore, putting away lying. Don't lie, he says. Then he quotes the Old Testament. Let each of you speak truth to one another. And then he gives the reason. Well, lying is wrong. It's against the Ten Commandments. That's not what he said. That's true, but it's not what he says. For we are members one of another. You are part of that new humanity. We're part of that new humanity. We're the ones who will inherit the heavens and the earth. And we ought to be speaking truth to one another. Look at verse five, chapter 5, verse 8. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness and righteousness and truth. Finding out what is acceptable, Lord. Live out who you are. Live out this new humanity, this vital union that you have with Christ. Now, let's apply this to ourselves. And by way of application, I want to just say this then. This message is vitally important. And what I'm about to say is vitally important. And that is this. The health and function of the local body of believers is essential to spiritual growth and maturity. The body of Christ, the, the health and well-being, the, the, the connection, the vital connection with its union with the head, the flow of energy, the flow of the Holy Spirit, the flow of the life of Christ, the flow of the victory over sin, the flow of the victory over death, the resurrection power, the flow that comes through the local church is vital to your spiritual and my spiritual health and vitality. It's vital. It's vital. And in our day and age, this vitality is being broken. And many people are breaking this vitality with a false sense of independence. I know that some of you are used to using the phrase and, and, and that strong, independent woman. 
I actually am pushing back against that phrase now pretty vehemently because I don't believe there's such thing as a strong, independent woman, and I don't believe there's such thing as a strong, independent man. In fact, I have biblical grounds for the man side because God said it's not good for man to be alone, <laughs> okay? This idea that we need to be strong and independent of other people is absolutely contrary to the, how we are as people. The Trinity itself is three in one. There's no strong, independent individual in the Trinity. We are, un, we are created to be in connection with others. We are created to be in communion with one another. We are created. So a better line would be their strength in numbers than anything else. We are created to be that. There, and so let's bring this down. There is no such thing as a strong, independent Christian. It's impossible. If my finger wanted to be a strong and independent finger, and, got, and so it severed itself from my body and went over there in the corner, it's not going to be strong or independent or even alive for very long because it's detached from the body. And see, dear ones, if you are going to flourish in your Christian life, you are only going to flourish well to the best that you can flourish in the midst of a healthy, vibrant church. And if you separate yourself from that, you are going to flounder. You're going to flounder. And I've seen this all the time. Now, dear friends, I'm not going to make any apologies right now for myself. I'm going to get a passionate. I'm going to be dogmatic. I'm going to be a zealot because I am. I'm zealous about this stuff. And it's the reason is because I love and care for people so much. And I've seen this happen so often. I've seen people who separate themselves for some reason or another. They got upset about something that went on in church. They got lazy and started going to, you know, the business. Got to, they separated themselves from the church. And I've watched them over time. And it's broken my heart in so many times. I've watched them grow stale. I watched them grow cold. And it even gets to the point that after you see them again, after years later, they seem like different people almost. And it's tragic. And some of them have left the faith. On the other hand, I have seen people who gather together in healthy, vibrant churches. I've seen them gather together with other people who have a passion for Christ. And I see them grow in their passion for Christ. With other people who have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, I see them get that hunger and thirst after righteousness. With other people who, 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 who are sitting and hearing the word preached with Holy Spirit unction and power accurately from the word of God, the word of God being opened up so men's ideas are not intruded in there, but the word comes with power and might. I've seen their lives change. People knit together, knit together, and growing together on pilgrimage together, uniting closer and closer together, just as Chris said in the opening this morning when he talked about his family, his extended family, his church family. I've seen that. I love the title of Eugene Peterson. He has a book entitled The Wisdom of One Another. We grow by being together, by being with one another, and the synergy that comes from gifts one to another. We grow by that. People using their gifts. We grow. We flourish. A vitality comes, and transformation comes. Transformation comes. And all of a sudden, a man will say, you know what? My kid acted up, and I normally would have been so impatient. And somehow I was patient. I was like, wow, what's going on in my life? It's because they're growing in grace. They're growing in the patience of God. Couples, couples will say, our, our marriage is better. We're just more compassionate. We're more, we're more kind to one another from the time that they've spent growing in a church. Dear friends, and this isn't Crossroads alone. This is any good church where it's healthy and vibrant. It's, 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 God, it's godly, holy, humble people following after the living Christ. I've had so many people say to me, though, I have grown more in six months in this church than I have 20 years previously. I have truly heard that very often, and it doesn't surprise me. And it's no reflection on me. There's no reflection on us. It's reflection on how Christ has ordained his local church. I have known people who say to me, I've actually had people say to me in this room, we've been attending here for six months, and I have to tell you something, Pastor, and these are the words that came out of one of our sister's mouths. I feel like I'm married to a different man. God has so transformed him. I feel like I'm married to a different man. 
We find ourselves being more grace-filled. We find ourselves being more compassionate. We find ourselves being molded into the image of Christ under the whole rubric of fellowship one with another, unity with Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the word being preached, the power of holy, humble lives around us. We find ourselves growing, but guess what? Guess what? I want you to see what that's doing. What that's doing is that's God working out his plan to transform the world to a new heavens and a new earth. It's happening right now. And it's not just happening here. It's happening all around the world of every tribe and every nation and every language. It's happening. It's happening. Why do you think I have a passion to go to the Dominican Republic and train pastors? Not because I have a passion for traveling. That's way over in my life. Not that I have the passion for being in another culture. Not that I have a passion for all these other dishes. It's a passion to see God glorified by biblical churches being flourishing in that area as well. And so you see, dear friends, and that's why Paul is so emphatic when he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, be united, one, so that the gifts and the life and the vitality of Christ will flow. And that's why, dear friends, it is a tragedy what's happening in American churches today. American churches who have lost focus of and we're now talking about politics, right-wing politics, left-wing politics, who are busy yelling and fighting and screaming about some cultural war that they want to see won. Or others who are distracted into prosperity, health, and wealth, and, and an, absolute, an absolute explosion of self-centeredness. The ugliest thing about modern man is this, is this idolatry of self. And now churches are taking it and sanctifying it and making it their message. Churches intoxicated by numbers as if numbers are success. And therefore running in silly programs, demeaning the gospel, looking just like the world. Such churches, people going to such churches, they don't flourish. They dry up and then they leave saying, well, the church is a failure. The church failed me. No, dear ones, we need churches that are focused on the holy. We need churches that are focused on Christ. We need a people that are enamored with Jesus Christ and can't believe that the Son of God loves me and the Son of God came and died for me and God sent his Son and I'm experiencing this grace and the fullness of it. Dear friends, do you know how this church breezed through COVID, breezed through very, very, very uh, antagonistic elections, breezed through all that? How did we breeze through all that? Our eyes were focused on Christ. We were focused on the cross. We were focused on grace. We were focused on the kingdom. We were focused on what we were to be about. And those things did not disrupt and divide us as they did so many churches. No, dear ones, when we need to be prayerful. We need to be genuine. We need to be real. We need to be humble. We need to be faithful. We need to be grace-filled. We need to be constantly experiencing the grace and the reality and the presence of Christ in our midst. That's how God is transforming us and transforming the world. But not only will Christians say, wow. Dear ones, we need to do this for the sake of the world itself. And I think that's what Justin Beerley was seeing. These new atheists were starting to say, wait a minute. Our secular worldview cannot sustain a healthy culture. And that's obviously true. Our scientism, our scientism, our belief in science as rationalistic, we can fill beakers and we can do this and that, that that somehow is going to answer all the questions. It's not. We don't know who we are and we're having this major cultural identity crisis. We don't know who we are and we're losing hope. We don't know who we are and we have no future vision. And all of a sudden we find it in the church. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says this amazing thing. He's talking about the gifts being used. Listen, I wanted this. I really wanted this one on the board but uh, so you could see with your eyes. But just listen very carefully. Paul's talking about the church in Ephesus and how they were being distracted and they got into this whole spiritual gifts zaniness. And he said this. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, comes into the church, the body, the local body of believers, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. 
Now, that ain't going to happen in some political right-wing church. It's not going to happen in some political left-wing church. It's not going to happen in some prosperity church. It's going to happen when the Holy Spirit is present and ministering through the word. You've felt it. You've experienced it in this room, I know. He says, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down in his face, he will worship God and report that. Listen to these last four words. God is truly among you. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. And I've experienced it amongst these people. There is a savior enthroned on high. And I've seen him through the eyes of faith as the word of God was opened. And the spirit of God was present. And the two or three are gathered. And Jesus was in their midst. Dear ones, our beloved neighbors and friends are longing for diversity. But they're failing at it because diversity for the sake of diversity, it always fails with no unity. They're longing for social justice, but it's failing them and they know it. They're longing for some peace. They're longing for some stability, but the world has become so unstable. And here, all of their longings can be found in Jesus Christ. I, listened, I read an, an article this week by a dear woman named Ayan Hersi Ali. Ayan Hersi Ali. She's either Senegal or Somalia. I don't remember which. She's, she's from Western Africa. And she, she grew up, she was moderate Muslim until the Muslim Brotherhood came in. And with the Muslim Brotherhood, she got a vision for the world. Islam was going to take over the world. Islam was going to bring righteousness. Islam was going to be justice. And she threw herself in. She threw herself in. And then she saw all of the internal divisions in, in Islam. And sadly, she underwent the genital cutting thing. And, and it was just tragic. And so she, she reacted against that. And she became an atheist. She's very intelligent. She's actually a scholar at uh, Stanford University. She's very intelligent. She became an atheist. And she actually became, again, once again, close personal friends with Dawkins and all these other guys. And that left her empty. And then she started watching the secular vision deteriorating in the culture around her. And then she became a Christian. And the article that she wrote recently published was Why I Am Now a Christian. I'd like to read you the last two paragraphs of this article. She said, the lesson that I learned from my years in the Muslim Brotherhood was the power of a unifying story embedded in the foundational texts of Islam to attract, engage, and mobilize the Muslim masses. Unless we offer something as meaningful, I fear the erosion of our civilization will continue. Fortunately, there is no need to look for some new age concoction of medication and mindfulness. Christianity has it all. Her last paragraph says this, that is why I no longer consider myself a Muslim apostate but a lapsed atheist. Of course, I still have a great deal to learn about Christianity. Listen to the next line. Paul would have loved it. He said, amen. I discover a little more at church each Sunday. But I have recognized in my own long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief had to offer. She came to experience the unsearch, what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. Dear ones, have any of you walked in here today and you are one of them that's on a pilgrimage but you don't know to where? You're starting to lose hope. You're starting to, to feel like there's no, there's no foundation, there's nothing solid for me anymore. You're confused as to who your identity, what your identity actually is, who you actually are. How there can be any meaning out there. How there can be any hope. Perhaps you have failed in your life. And, and there are some things in your life that, are, that, that you're embarrassed that anyone would even know. But you can't get over them. You can't, you can't put them to rest. You can't find forgiveness. Find release. Dear ones, all that you're longing for, all that you're longing for is available to you in Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God. He, in him is forgiveness. In him is life. In him is vitality. In him is victory. In him is identity. In, in him is purpose. 
He is bringing this whole world into this beautiful, transformed new heavens and new earth, and you can be a part of it. And he invites you to come. Come as you are. Come with all of your sin. Come with all of your failure. Come with all of your questions. Come with all of your fears. Come with it all, but come to the very Son of God, and there you will find welcome, and you will find one who loves you and who will embrace you. And as he unfolds the glorious wisdom and, and all that there is in him, you will find yourself fuller and full and fuller and fuller until you are filled with all the fullness of God. That's yours. It's available to you in Christ Jesus. Repent of anything that's in the past that is taking you from him. Flee to him. Run into his arms. Embrace him by faith and you will find everlasting life. A new heavens and a new earth will come and you'll be in it. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you once again that in your grace and your mercy, even in your, your condescension, your humility, if we could use those words, you are right now around this world raising up a kingdom, transforming a people, populating a new humanity, changing us. And right now, there are local expressions of your body just living and, and growing and maturing and, and being nurtured and fed and using gifts. And Father, thank you that we can be a part of that here. Thank you. Thank you that our pilgrimage on this earth is not alone. It's with these brothers and sisters. And thank you, as we often say here, this is our spiritual family and our home. Father, thank you for the foretaste of heaven we have known in this place. Thank you for the presence. Thank you, Lord Jesus, where two or three are gathered, you're here. May you be glorified. Build us up. Strengthen us. Make us yours. Mature us, we pray. Help us, we ask. And may you be glorified and honored in all of these things. We praise you and glorify you in your precious name.